Psalm 50. The Mighty One, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to where it sets. From Zion, perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him, and around him a tempest rages. He summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness, for he is a God of justice. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Sacrifice, thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High and call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will honor me. But to the wicked person, God says, What right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips? You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander your own mother's son. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. But I now arraign you and set my accusations before you. Consider this, you who forget God, or I will tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you. Those who sacrifice thank offerings honor me, and to the blameless I will show my salvation. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Uh, that has been written for us and for our salvation. Uh, we pray this morning that as we reflect on it, that you might teach us of what you are like and how we might live in a way that honours and glorifies you. Amen. 
If you look at Psalm 50, you'll see at the very top uh, that it's a psalm of Asaph. Uh, Asaph, uh, we know very little about, apart from the fact that he was the choral director or the band leader or the worship uh, director of uh, this particular time, and especially for King David. Psalm 50 is one of his psalms, and it's broken into three roughly equal parts. Uh, Three descriptions of what God is like, with our response clearly articulated each time. And you'll see from the handout what those three parts are. The mighty one who summons, the mighty one who needs nothing, and the mighty one who sees everything. The first part, verses 1 through 6, the mighty one who summons. A summons or an invocation is a call for people, a call for people to come, and in a sense, when this one calls, we come running. Uh, Verses 1 to 6 are almost as if to say, pay attention, pay attention, listen up, what you're about to hear is worth listening to. You see that because there in verse 3, our God comes and will not be silent, a fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. Uh, From fire and in storm, God calls to both the heavens above and the earth below that he may judge his people. There's two striking notes from this first part of Psalm 50, verses 1 through 6. Firstly, uh, it's a declaration of judgment, uh, not of other nations, but of Israel. It's a declaration not of unbelievers, but of the people of God. And so verse 5, God says, "'Gather to me this consecrated people who made a covenant with me by sacrifice.'" This is a declaration of judgment, not of the world around, but of God's people within the church. And the second thing is that, uh, verse 6, the heavens proclaim God's righteousness, for he is a God of justice. The reason why that's worth us noting at the start is because if you've just brought a sacrifice to God, that's what we're told there in verse 5, God's people have made a covenant with him by sacrifice. If you've brought a sacrifice to God, probably what you're hoping to hear is that God is merciful, not that God is just. So how will the mighty one respond to his people? What will be his verdict of his people as they make a covenant with him by sacrifice? Well, this is where I want to spend most of our time, and that's in points two and three, the mighty one who needs nothing and the mighty one who sees everything. Come back to verse uh, 7 through 15. I'm just going to read verses 7 through 13 again. Uh, Really helpfully read for us by Chris. Let me refresh our memory as to what it's about. Verse 7. Listen, my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you, Israel. I am God, your God. I bring no charges against you concerning your sacrifices or concerning your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? Uh, This part of the psalm makes it very clear that as God judges his people, as he evaluates uh, his people, his judgment is not very positive. It's a bit of an understatement there. Uh, But his judgment is not very positive. In fact, 
we're told in verse 7 that God testifies against his people, not for them. I often hear unbelievers uh, say, if only God would speak directly to me. Uh, To which sometimes I say, beware of what you wish for. But the judgment that God has to bring here is about, in particular, verse 8, their sacrifices and their burnt offerings. God has evaluated what it is that his people have brought to him. And it seems that there are two problems. Two problems with what God's people have brought to their God. The first is, and most simply, the things that they bring are not that important to God. The things that they bring are not that important to God. Verse 13, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Uh, I mentioned before that uh, I'm married and uh, Wendy and I, one of the things that we do is we oversee the marriage ministry and part of that involves preparing couples for marriage and uh, at some point in the preparation for marriage, uh, we talked to the couples about what many of you would have heard of, it's this idea of love languages. Uh, You might have heard that phrase before. That is, one of the things that it's important to do is to work out what is important to your spouse-to-be that you might understand what it is that will convey love to them, the things that they value and they appreciate. In our marriage, well, one of the ways in which this has played out is that uh, early on in our marriage, my wife, every time she gave me a present, would also give me a wonderful card that she had handmade and written a lovely inscription inside. Now, I am not a particularly sentimental person. That might surprise you. Uh, But what it meant was that uh, I often didn't keep the cards. She would keep them, though, and put them in a box. And I'd ask her why, and that led to a conversation that I don't need to repeat, but... I guess eventually I worked out that there was a problem, or I guess I worked out what was important to her when no matter how great the present I acquired to give to her, her first question would be, so where's my card? I'm very slow, so it took me a couple of years to work this out. Uh, What happens actually nowadays, you might be interested to know, that when my wife gives me a present, she gives me a present, she gives me the card, I read the card, and I just hand it back to her, and she puts it away for safekeeping. Now, the point of the story is, of course... There is no point in trying to give God something that he doesn't particularly care about or that he doesn't need or that he doesn't value. The Israelites are bringing to God offerings, the blood of bulls, the flesh of bulls, the blood of goats. God says he doesn't need them. The second problem, and more profoundly, is that Anything we bring to God, uh, the flesh of bulls, the blood of goats, whatever it is, anything that we bring to God, well, it was actually his in the first place. And so in one sense, it's not really a sacrifice if you're giving back to God what was already his. As an aside, uh, I think this is the conviction that enables us to give generously to ministry, to the spread of the gospel. Because really, when we give, we're just giving back to God. I mentioned we have three young children. Uh, Each month, they get a small amount of pocket money. And when they do, they're given their pocket money and...
there's a sin that is simply labelled giving back to God, into which they put some of the money that they've been given. It's a really liberating way to think about what you have, actually. I know that for some of us, we find it hard to think about being generous towards others and particularly generous towards ministry and to mission. But I think this is the key. You see, I find it very easy to give away other people's stuff. I've never had a problem with that. That's all it is, isn't it? We are giving back to God. What was his all along? According to the Leviticus, if you were to go back and have a wonderful few weeks reading your way through that part of the Bible, according to Leviticus, the burnt offering is the first offering that you're meant to bring when you draw near to God. So if, for example, you have committed some sin that you need to atone for, you will go and offer a sacrifice for that. But before you can do that, the first thing you do is you offer a burnt offering. So when in Psalm 50, God says that his burnt, these burnt offerings mean nothing to him, he's saying pretty bluntly to his people, stop, don't come any nearer. Why? Why is God so harsh? Well, in fact, the third section in Psalm 50 is going to better explain that. Uh, but for now, is there any hope? If that's how God looks at what we bring to him, then why would you bother? To put it slightly differently, why did God set up the system of offerings and sacrifices at all if this is how he regards them now? Well, verses 14 and 15, at the bottom of page 565, uh, verses 14 and 15 are going to give the answer to that, but you would have noticed that verses 14 and 15 are almost identical to verse 23 so I'm going to hold that thought and we'll come back to it at the end. Which brings us then to part three, the mighty one who sees everything. This is the third section, so turn over the page now to verses 16 through 23. The mighty one who sees everything. Verses 16 and 17 open this section and they're pretty cutting. Verse 16, to the wicked, wicked person, God says, what right have you to recite my laws or take my covenant on your lips, you hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. God says that his people are happy to recite his laws and even take his covenant on their lips, and yet they hate his instruction and they cast his words behind them. In other words, they do not practice what they preach, presumably because they think they can get away with it. After all, I take it, it's easy for God's people to think, well, I could always just bring an offering or sacrifice to God, tell him I'm sorry, and everything will be fine with the Mighty One. You might have heard the phrase, it is easier to seek forgiveness than permission. And I wonder if that's what's going on in the Israelites at this point, particularly when you look at verses 18 through 20. Uh, there you'll notice three of the Ten Commandments are listed. Adultery, theft, false testimony. This is what characterises God's people. It's actually worse than mere hypocrisy. 
It's the thought that because your neighbour cannot see what you do, then neither does God. We saw in part two, God needs nothing. Part three is the compliment. God sees everything. He sees what his people who bring offerings and sacrifices are like when they're not gathered in church. He sees them disregard him Monday through Saturday. So their Sunday best means nothing to him at all. Well, I did mention before from verses 14 through 15 that there was some hope and the same idea comes up again in verse 22 and 23, which is where we'll focus, verse 22 and 23. Consider this, you who forget God, or I'll tear you to pieces with no one to rescue you, those who sacrifice thank offerings honour me, and to the blameless I will show my salvation. The part that's repeated, if you just turn back the page, is verse 14, Sacrifice thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. Verse 23, those who sacrifice thank offerings honour me. In other words, there is something that we can bring to God. It's this thing called a thank offering. Let me say a few words about what, this is, what I think this means. I think we're being told here that no matter what we've done, so the second section, we've brought sacrifices that God doesn't really need, And no matter what we fail to do, that is the third section, act as if God doesn't see everything that we do. Asaph calls for exactly the same response. Exactly the same response. He says, sacrifice thank offerings to God. Or literally, sacrifice to God thanksgiving. Sacrifice to God thanksgiving. The question is, how do you do that? How do you sacrifice to God thanksgiving? And that's the question that I printed on your handout. I want to spend a few minutes reflecting on what it means to sacrifice to God thanksgiving as opposed to bringing to God a burnt offering or a sacrifice for sin. Here's what I'd like to say. Compare and contrast a burnt offering which you bring so that you may safely approach God and a thank offering which you bring because God has already accepted you. In which case of a thank offering, it means you're, you're not trying to earn God's favour. You're not trying to atone for your sin. You're simply expressing heartfelt gratitude. Those two are very different, aren't they? Let me give you an example. It'll feel trivial, but hopefully it makes sense. I mentioned before that I spend a fair bit of my time working with university students. Uh, This might surprise you, but apparently university students spend a lot of their time thinking about dating and who they might marry one day. No great surprise there, actually. See if you can spot the difference between these two scenarios. Scenario one is a bloke saying to a girl that... I'll give you a diamond necklace if you go out with me. That's scenario one. Compare that with a husband who gives his wife jewellery on their wedding anniversary. 
What's the difference? Well, actually, in the first case, in effect, it's a bribe. And if accepted, it actually reflects poorly on the recipient as well. When we thank someone, we thank them for something that's been freely given, uh, like an unexpected gift or a windfall gain. And so for that reason, actually, a worker is not obliged to thank their boss for paying them for services rendered because wages are not a gift. They are something that you've earned and deserved. Now, at this point, I do want to say to all the employees out there, it's a good thing for you to be polite to your boss and to thank them anyway, but that's not the expectation. Psalm 50, in encouraging us to sacrifice to God thanksgiving, is actually proposing a pretty big mindset Uh, mindset shift in the way in which we relate to God. See, it's saying that in the end, our only hope is that the God who sees everything and so is fooled by no one, this God who needs nothing, nevertheless graciously admits us and receives us and welcomes us in. If we truly believe that, then our first response to God will always be thankfulness for his mercy because his character is what gives us confidence to approach him. It's not our conduct that gives us that confidence. We understand that ultimately God's acceptance depends not on what we have done but purely on his mercy. And I think actually the litmus test of whether or not we've understood that and we believe that and we live by that is this. If you won't start with gratitude, it's because you don't think you have anything to thank God for. You don't think that God has done anything for you. Psalm 50 is not meant to make us feel nervous about our sins, but it's meant to make us feel thankful. Because... Ultimately, this God, this God warns his people. He doesn't ignore them. He doesn't leave them to their own devices. This is a God who speaks. He doesn't leave us in the dark, and even if he does judge, nevertheless, he rebukes, and he warns us whilst we still have time. Here's where I want to finish. Why should I be interested in this God? It's the question that I printed near the bottom of your page. Why should I believe in this God? Let me uh, try and answer this in two ways, depending on what kind of person you are today, what you think about God. Uh, Firstly, if you're someone here who's not a believer, and I know I'm only a guest as well, but I know that uh, on behalf of Steve and the others uh, here, Just, it's wonderful to have you here today. Uh, The whole reason this community was set up, actually, was to be able to enable more people to hear about who Jesus is and to hear about our faith. So we're delighted that you're here today. I want to say something, I guess, explicitly and directly to you. If you're not a believer, 
What I'd like to say to you is, God sees everything. Which means he cannot be fooled. And I think that's both comforting and confronting. God sees everything, he cannot be fooled. That's both comforting and confronting. Let me say why I think it's, com- it's comforting. Um, it's comforting because if God sees everything but needs nothing, then he is a God who is not, and understand what I'm about to say here, he is a God who is not needy. He's not needy in any way. He is entirely satisfied in himself, entirely secure in himself. And that means that this God is not corruptible. His motives are completely pure. He acts not out of his own needs, but actually he acts out of our needs. We need him to intervene and to forgive. He's not needy, and that means that he's therefore not distant or remote or removed or aloof or unmoved by our gratitude. He's not prone to whimsy or to changing his mind when the circumstances change. He's not needy, so he never finds himself out of control, caught off guard or unawares. And even the most significant aspect of what God has ever done, the sending of his own son to stand in our place and bear the punishment for our sins, that's not God making a mistake. That's all part of his plan for our salvation. A God who sees everything and who needs nothing I think that's immensely comforting. Although it's also confronting. It's confronting because, although Psalm 50 is primarily directed at believers, at God's people, nevertheless, it has something to say to those who are not. Please don't ever interpret God's patience as incompetence or impotence. If God is not fooled by his own people, who are at least trying, I suppose you might say, what will he say to those who ignore him entirely? It's the reason why I printed 2 Peter 3 verse 9 for you on your handout. Here the Apostle Peter reflects on God's patience, on God's apparent slowness in action. To say the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness, rather He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Uh, If you are here today as someone who's not a believer, at the invitation of a Christian friend or family member who keeps pestering you to come to church, this is why they do it. Because they want you to know that God is patient and that he shows mercy, but that that still requires a response. Second thing, and here I finish, what should I, why should I be interested in this God? If you are a believer, well, to the members here of Trinity South Coast, God needs nothing, and yet 
He showers favor and mercy on us. And I think that means that for us as Christians, each day we have a deliberate decision to make. Here's our decision. Will we choose to be thankful to God and express our thankfulness to him? I mentioned at the very start that this was a psalm for Asaph, the music director, the band leader. Do you wonder why it is that this song was meant to be sung in church by Asaph for God's people? Do you wonder what it would have been like if this was the way in which we opened our service today? With this psalm being read or sung for us at the beginning of our gathering? How would it have affected our time this morning? How would it have affected our attitude? I think that what it does is that it reminds us that, above all, God calls on us to bring to him our thanksgiving. Our thanksgiving for all that he has done. Not that he needs it, of course, but... Again, I suppose, if you consider any human relationship, if you never express thanks, it won't last long. In fact, the more important the relationship, the more often you express how deeply thankful and grateful you are for it. So let me finish with these words from Colossians 2, which I'll then pray. So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Will you join me in praying? Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ, for the gift of his life for our salvation and for the hope and promise of glory that we have in the power of your spirit. Thank you. And we pray that each day you might enable us to overflow with thankfulness for all that you have done. Amen.